Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Now that's who we are. We are a royal priesthood. We are kingdom people. We have been chosen to be a part of God's kingdom. And what better way to learn about how to be kings and priests unto our God but then to go back to the very first kingdom period when you have the inauguration of the kings, King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. And that's the series we're in right now entitled Kings and Kingdoms. We're learning both from their successes and their failures how we can be kingdom people. Now, we are looking at Saul today and, uh, and, and going to be studying him in these next few moments. Uh, men, how many think you can do anything? Let me see your hand. You can fix the plumbing. You can do the carpentry. You can do everything in the house. We, men are kind of wired that, that we think we can just jump in and fix it and take care of it. But how many times have we jumped in to try to take care of the plumbing only to create a bigger leak, only to flood the floor out, only to forget to turn the water off first, and only wind up calling the plumber to begin with. We've all, we've had that happen to us, at least I have, and we know what that's like when we mess things up. And there's a tendency, a natural tendency, especially in men, is to jump in and try to fix everything and do it yourself. And we think if I can do it myself, I'll save the money from paying somebody else, or I can get it done the way I want it done, or I know better, or I'm smarter, or I can figure this out myself. Our pride somehow rises up within us and we say, I can fix this. Well, you've got this story here with King Saul who says, I can fix this. I can do this thing. I can take care of this myself. I don't need any help. And, uh, and this is exactly the story we have here today. Now, Saul starts out. We started last week with King Saul. Starts out with amazing potential. The Bible says he's head and shoulders above everybody else. He is a, an amazing physical specimen. He's a strong leader. He's a strong man. We see him even starting out spiritually very well. The Bible says, is he also among the prophets? And so he's prophesying with all the prophets and hanging out with all the spiritual leaders of the community. But Saul had some very serious character flaws. And this is where we find ourselves today. Take your Bibles out and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and let me give you the background very quickly. The Philistines are the oppressors, and this is one of the nations that Israel is going to battle with. They're really not going to even be taken care of towards the end of King David's reign, and so uh, they're going to battle with these Philistines all along the way. Uh, They always held the nations around them in fear, especially this new nation that now is in the Holy Land called the Israelites. Only Saul and Jonathan had weapons. So you've got an Israelite army with no weapons whatsoever because it was the Philistines who had the corner on the market on both steel and blacksmithery. So they were the ones who had all the steel. They had all the weapons. In fact, the Bible tells us that even when the uh, Israelites wanted to get their farm tools sharpened, they had to go to the Philistines to take care of all of that. And so they're the ones who have the weapons. Only Saul and Jonathan have weapons at this time. 
Uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, he's a go-getter. And you're going to see several times where he launches these own raids of his own. Uh, the next chapter, he'll go up on top of a mountain and, and, and defeat a Philistine garrison. But here he goes through an outpost called Geba. And there, Saul and Jonathan and about 1,000 men lay siege to this outpost. And they destroy the Philistines right there. Well, that makes them mad. They get angry because their guys have been killed. They have been ambushed. They've been attacked and destroyed. And so they amass their own army. And the Bible records in this chapter that the Philistines get 3,000 chariots, 6,000 cavalry to mount these chariots and lead the attack and ride the horses into battle. And, and the Bible says soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And so they have a massive army and they're getting ready to attack the Israelites. Saul, if you'll do the math, he has his 2,000 men and Jonathan, his son, have 1,000 men. So combined, they have 3,000 men between them, probably going up against 10 times that number. And the Bible says that when, the, that when they're mounting their forces and they're getting ready to make this attack, the men get terrified. And it says they, they flee to the hills, they flee to the caves, they flee to the woods, they begin to hide out, they begin to scatter, they begin to run for their lives. And, and what has happened is Samuel has told Saul, wait there, in one week I'm going to come and I'm going to offer a sacrifice on your behalf. All I want you to do is wait and I will get there. And we will prepare ourselves spiritually for a battle. But the troops are scattering. They're running and fleeing for their lives. By the end of that week, they have now 600 men left. And they're going up against a massive army that threatens to annihilate them. And Saul reasons to himself, I can work this thing out on my own. I've watched Samuel do it. I know how to offer the sacrifice. I can do it as good as he can do it. And so he prepares to make the sacrifice. This is where our story leads up to today. So let's stand together as we read God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse number 8. We'll pick up the story right there. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Saul's men began to scatter, so he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up a burnt offering. Just as he had finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down to me at Gilgal and I have not, and, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God that he gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Father, today I pray you'll help us learn from these lessons today, this powerful lesson of of what it means to to obey you, to follow you, to serve you. May we learn from these examples, God. Teach us from your word what it means to be kingdom people. And Father, we'll thank you for your sweet presence. Open up our hearts this morning, we pray. In your mighty name we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Saul is a Gilgal. 
He sees the impending attack getting ready to occur. Now Saul, by his very nature, he's a stubborn man. He's very impetuous. <clears throat> he is strong-willed. And, uh, and you're going to find out that he is unable to submit to divine rule. Saul has a real submission problem here. No matter what Samuel would tell him or God or anybody else, Saul is bound and determined to do it his way. Now, there's a couple lessons from this story, and we're going to take a couple of stories today. Saul fails many times throughout the history of Israel, throughout his rule and reign. He will fail on many occasions, but on two occasions, his failures are so great that Samuel pronounced to him, like he did at the end of this passage right here, from now on, the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. What does it mean to lose the kingdom? What does it mean to fail so badly that you're no longer allowed to rule and reign with Christ when we lose that kingdom position, that kingdom place of honor and authority and power that God has for every single one of us. From this first failure, you're going to see a couple of quick lessons. And it's, the first lesson is simply this. We need to choose to obey God rather than man. We must always choose to obey God rather than make the choice to please man. And there's always going to be this tension here because people around you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. They will press you from every direction. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves, it's very easy to play to the crowd, to please men around us, to be right in the middle of the activity. And, And what Saul does here is a very seemingly spiritual thing. He reasons to himself, if I just offer the sacrifice, then somehow I will rally the troops, I'll look good in front of them, I will appear very, very spiritual, God's going to have to come down and, and give us favor, and I will keep all my troops together from running and scattering. But he went against God's ordained order, because he says Samuel is the judge, he is the priest, he is the only one designated to offer the spiritual sacrifice. It's not for you to take it upon yourself to do. Now, now here's the deal. Sometimes we mistake activity, even spiritual things, but the question is, are we pleasing God? We can do a lot of stuff. We can be very, very busy. We can appear to be doing the right thing, but we've got to ask ourselves, are we really doing God's will? Because God's will has got to be preeminent. Jesus Christ talked about his time upon the earth, and he says in John 5, 19, he says, I tell you the truth, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what the Father, what his Father is doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. In other words, I am here to simply do the will of my Heavenly Father. And whatever God wants of me, that's what I'm supposed to do, because I belong to him and I serve him. We, we become so influenced by people around us, by the opinions of man, by the desire to want to look good, by the desire to want to impress other peoples, by the desire often to blend in with the rest of the crowd, by the desire never to rock the boat or never ruffle anyone's feathers. We just kind of want to blend in and merge. I, I will tell you that's not the way Jesus was. He says, I must do my father's business. I must be about my father's will. 
And even if it meant ruffling the feathers of all those religious people around him, he would be brought into direct conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it would lead to his own death. But he would not accept the status quo. He would not be like them. He would not imitate them. He would not play their games. Because doing the Father's will was much more important for him. It would ultimately lead to his own death. Now, here's the deal. If we are going to know and do the Father's will, we've got to know what his will is. And to know what his will is requires intimacy with the Father. And when I'm intimate with the Father, when I'm in prayer, when I'm in the Word, and when I'm drawing close to him, God makes his will very, very clear to all of us. Now listen, it's not even so much as knowing the will of God, but do we carry out the will of God? And in this case, King Saul knew very clearly what the will of God was. He says, do not do a thing until I get there, and then I will offer a sacrifice. He knew exactly what the will of God was, but he did not carry it out. He did not complete the assignment or complete the mission. The will of God's very clear. The word of God speaks to us. We've got his word. We know exactly what his will is and what the expectations of kingdom rule and reign are all about. We've got the Holy Spirit inside of us to be our guide and show us the way to go and lead us into all truth. We've got the fellowship of the body of Christ and and the mutual encouragement and the lifting one another up in the most holy faith. It's not so much knowing the will of God, but are we doing God's will? If we're going to be kingdom people above all else, we've got to choose to do God's will. We've got to choose to serve the king and follow him and not do it ourselves as a result because he chose to please man he the bible says would lose the kingdom i think the second lesson from this particular failure is this he chose god's time rather than his own or we've got to choose god's time rather than making my own time you know i want to tell you guys it's it's hard sometimes to wait on god God shows us something, God reveals something to us, but because we, we, we want to have activity, we jump ahead of God, and we do it, and we get ahead of God's time and God's plan, and we mess things up. How many business decisions have I messed up because I didn't wait to hear from God? I saw an opportunity, I jumped on it, never saw God's will, colossal failure. How many times do we get ahead of God and mess everything up? There's a story in the Old Testament about Abraham. And Abraham is getting old. And uh, his wife is no spring chicken anymore. And, uh, and so he wants to take matters into his own hand. And uh, with his wife's encouragement, he says, here, take my handmaid Hagar, sleep with her. At least you can have a generation or offspring that you can call your own. And so go in and be with my handmaiden. So he goes against the law of the Lord. He goes against God's time because God said, I will make of you a fruitful nation. I will bless you as the stars of the sky and the stand of the seashore. I will take care of you. Your descendants will be numerous and they will be many and they will be through your wife. Sarah but he couldn't wait takes matters into his own hand tries to solve his own problem and he takes Hagar sleeps with her and she has a son and his name is Ishmael now I want you to listen to how history got entirely messed up because one man refused to wait on God 
An angel described Ishmael this way. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Now listen to me. Abraham, because he did not wait for God's time, because he took matters into his own hand, started what is known as now family strife. And so you have Hagar and Sarah at war with each other. You will eventually have Ishmael and Isaac at war with each other. You will eventually have the Arabs and the Jews at war with each other. And you will eventually have twin towers falling down to the ground and terrorists all around our world and an Arab-Israeli conflict that still goes on to this very day because one man says, I can't wait on God's time. That's probably the most radical illustration you can get to prove the point, but I will tell you, we all mess things up when we get impatient, when we say, God, I haven't heard clearly from you, but I feel like i got to do this thing, and we jump into this business venture and this thing over here, and we mess it up over here, and we get ahead of God, and we mess everything up when we've never heard, thus saith the Lord. And that's exactly what King Saul did. We want God, and we want God to answer now. We want the answer, we want it now, we want it right away. But don't get ahead of God. In fact, sometimes, let me tell you this, God's delays, when the answer doesn't come right when we think it ought to come, and how it ought to come, and when we jump out ahead of God, God's delays are there to strengthen your faith, and try your faith, and prove your faith so that in God's time, he might bring about his resurrection. Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, is sick. He's sick unto the point of death. They send word to Jesus. Jesus, come quickly. The brother you love, the friend you love, is about to die. You better get here quick. And the Bible says Jesus delays his leaving where he's at two more days. By the time he arrives to Bethany, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. And Mary and Martha both say, Lord, if only you had been here. If only you had gotten here quicker. They were looking for a healing. God wanted to bring a resurrection. And there are sometimes God allows our plans to die and be crucified and buried so that he can come along and he can bring a resurrection about because then when everything seems hopeless and dead, God will get all the glory and the honor and the praise. God's delays are often for our own benefit. He allows adversity and test and delays to strengthen our faith. Saul's at the end of himself, armies are scattering, but instead of waiting on the man of God, Samuel, he plunders ahead with his own reasoning and his own pride, and we get down to verse 14, he says, now your kingdom will not endure. Now this is the first foreshadowing of the time when it's pronounced, Saul, you're going to lose your kingdom. He's going to make a second failure that will even be greater, and he's going to make many failures, but this is the second failure related to his losing the kingdom. And this is when, when Samuel finally says his last pronunciation, I'm not going to see you again. This failure is it. Uh, God's ready to anoint another man. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And look at these first three verses. 
And Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over your people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they, when they waylaid them and came up from Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Okay, you got it? Now, in, in the first story in chapter 13, he's dealing with the Philistines. When you get to chapter 15, he's dealing with the Amalekites, another dreaded enemy that had given Israel trouble all along the way. The Amalekites came from Esau. Amalek was a, a descendant of Esau. Remember Esau and Jacob? Esau is the one that's called the profane man and a fornicator in the book of Hebrews. He's a very worldly man. He's a picture of worldly man without God. And Hebrews says he traded away his birthright. He's a profane man. He is a fornicator. He has offspring. One of those guys is named Amalek. It's out of Amalek that the Amalekites tribe came and grew up and became a fairly powerful army to be dealt with and reckoned with. Now remember when Moses is traveling through the wilderness and he's trying to get to the promised land. The Bible said the Amalekites kept attacking the Israelites, kept picking them off, kept fighting them, were a thorn in their side. They treated them rudely in the wilderness. They killed many of their men. And so finally he says, let's take care of the Amalekites. Moses goes up on top of the hill, remember? And he's there on top of the hill, Aaron and her. Aaron's on one side, her on the other, are holding up his arms as he is praying over the Israelites. Joshua, the general, is down in the valley. He's leading the attack against the Amalekites. And as long as his hands were up, they were winning a mighty battle. As soon as the hands got tired, the, the, the battle would swing and the Amalekites would start to win. Eventually, Joshua assumes control. They destroy the Amalekites. They win a great battle. But the problem is they didn't wipe them out completely. They weren't all there. They win the battle, but they weren't there. And for the next 400 years, the Amalekites are going to be nipping at the heel of the Israelites. They're going to be attacking the Israelites. There's going to be continual battles going on. And finally, Samuel says, you know what? Through, God says through Samuel, I've had enough. Wipe them out. I want you to be done once and for all with this newsome tribe called the Amalekites. Destroy them. Wipe them out. Everybody, their descendants, their family, their kids, their cattle, their sheep, destroy it all. I'm done with them. But they did something. They go into battle. Saul leads the army. They win a mighty victory. Malachites are dead all over the field. But they, he decides on his own, you know what? Why waste all these sheep? Why waste all these cattle? And above all things, it was customary in that time for one king, when he destroyed another, to bring that king back from the battle and show him off as a trophy of their victory. So he takes their king, King Agag, refuses to destroy him and kill him. He disobeys the word of the Lord. He brings Agag back, and he brings the best of the sheep and the best of the cattle. Now the Bible tells us that Samuel, God reveals this to Samuel. Not even there, but God reveals it to him of what 
Saul has already done. He sees it. He's a prophet. He's a seer. He sees already what Saul has been doing. And the Bible says he cries all night. And he cries for Saul. And he cries for Israel. And he cries for the kingdom. And and the Lord reveals to him what would happen. And God told him again, his kingdom is going to be taken from him and given to someone else. Now, there are some lessons that we can learn from this colossal failure, and I want to give you three very quickly. And you put these with the other two, and you're going to see what we should not be doing in the kingdom. First of all, you see a natural tendency to cover up sin. When we get in trouble, when we sin, often what accompanies that is we want to cover it up. We hide it. We cover it. We don't want anyone to know. We we bury it away. We deny it. We try to forget it. Look at verse 13 and 14 of this same chapter. It says, And when Samuel reached uh, reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Right away, there's a cover-up going on, a little bit of self-congratulation. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of the cattle that I hear? Now notice he says, I have done the commandment of the Lord. And right away, he's prepared to lie. He's prepared to cover it up. He doesn't want to ever expose to Samuel what he has done. How often have we sinned and we lie to cover it up? (coughs) And in doing so, we only compound our sin. And the guilt remains. And we cover it up. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What do they do? They sin against God. What do they begin to do? They begin the massive cover-up, and they hide out in the garden so they would not be caught or exposed. But notice something. It says in Genesis 3.10, we see a word for the very first time in the word of God. It's found, and I was afraid, and I hid. You never, up until that time, Adam and Eve never knew fear. Fear came as a result of sin. Fear came as a result of the cover-up. Follow me here. It's an emotion they had never experienced before. Now, I want to share something else with you, and it's simply this. Fear is the birthplace of religion. Laws, rules, and regulations lead us to believe that I serve God out of fear and punishment. And so I do what God wants me to do because I am a afraid, and I'm afraid of punishment. Christianity is Jesus fulfills the law. He took my punishment upon himself so I can have a relationship with the Father. Christianity is about relationship. Religion is about rules and regulations and fear. Christianity is love-based. Religion is fear-based. It began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. I serve God, I obey him because I love him. Jesus says, if you obey, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not if you fear me, you will keep my commandments. Mm. We serve God based on love. In fact, he says the whole law can be summed up in these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And the word of God tells us perfect love does what? Cast out all fear. Fear comes because I cover up. Fear becomes because I sinned. I don't want to be caught. I don't want to be found out. 
Fear comes when we attempt to hide sin instead of confessing our sins, opening ourselves up to the incredible love of God, coming back into God's mercy and grace again and finding forgiveness. We hide out and we cover up. Saul digs a pit of deception, but the Bible says it's the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle that give him away. There's a tendency when I sin, when I fail, I want to cover up my sin. I want to hide it. And often we lie and compound our sin one upon the other. The second lesson is this, and I want you to get this lesson. It's what I call the myth of partial obedience. The myth of partial obedience. Look at verse number 15. Samuel answered, the soldiers brought from them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. In other words, God, Samuel, we did what God told us to do. We destroyed everybody else except. We obeyed you except for one king, a few sheep, and a few cattle. And he reasons in his mind because he went out, as God told him to do, because he got his army together, God told him to do that, as he won a great, great victory against the Malachites, God had told him to do that, because he obeyed in all those areas, those other little areas really simply didn't matter that much. What's one king and a few sheep and a few cattle? In other words, in his mind, the end justifies the means. I can do what I want to and how I want to just as long as we accomplish the overall goal. Now, here's the myth. It is impossible to partially obey God. It is impossible to partially obey God. In fact, partial obedience equals disobedience. When we look into the word of God, we can't pick and choose what rules I like. I can't say, God, I'm going to go obey in this area, but you know what? I don't trust that area. I don't believe this area, but I'll obey the rest of it. I'll do the big stuff. My God, this little lie won't hurt, and this little thing won't hurt over here, and this little activity won't hurt. And what we do is we treat the word of God like an a la carte restaurant where I can pick and choose what I want to eat, and what I don't want, I ignore and I spit out. Mm. Paul says if we are guilty of breaking any law, we become a lawbreaker. And we can't keep the law in our own strength. That's very clear from the word of God. And so that love relationship with God, I want to please God. I want to glorify my father. And he gives me the grace to help serve him. And I serve him out of love, not fear. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And when I fail, and we will fail to keep all of his commandments, what do I do? I don't hide it. I open up, and I confess my sins, and I go to the Lord, and he's faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You can't partially obey God. You're either obedient or you're not. Mm, mm, mm. The third lesson is this. Obedience always trumps sacrifice. Obedience always trumps 
sacrifice. And here you have some very famous words, and if you've uh, been around at all, I've heard this before, but let me pick it up with verse 16. Uh, Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. And Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, you did not become the head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? So there's no such thing as partial obedience. Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord. See, here's where he's all messed up in his thinking, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep, in other words, the soldiers did it, their fault, and the cattle from the plunder. The best was devoted to God. Now, here's his point. He's justifying his disobedience by declaring, I will take the sheep and I will take the cattle and will sacrifice those. I don't know if he ever intended to do that, if he's just squirming now and trying to get out of this mess. But he says, I will sacrifice them to the Lord, your God at Gilgal. And here, listen to these words. And Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. Let's say that together. To obey is better than sacrifice. One more time. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now this is the second time he declares to Saul he has rejected you as being king. Why? Because he disobeyed the clear command of the Lord. Obedience always trumps sacrifice. Saul rationalized that disobedience was okay in this case because I'll use it to sacrifice. Now, this sounds very spiritual. I'm doing a good thing for God. I'm offering up sacrifices. Aren't I great? Listen to me. The truth is no amount of religious service or works can cover your sin. You can serve, you can give your money away, you can do good things, you can, you can be nice to everybody, you can be a wonderful, loving, giving, serving, attending person. And it may appease your conscience, but it will never bring about the righteousness of God. Only Jesus' blood can cover sin. Here's the harsh reality. Listen to me, and I'm, I'm going to shoot it straight to you, so... Love me. The reality is wonderful, nice, good people are going to fill up hell. Wonderful, nice, philanthropic, amazing people will fill up hell. Only the blood of Jesus Only a relationship with him can save us. All of our sacrifice and our good works and our good deeds and our efforts to try to work out our salvation in our own strength and our own ways and our own might will always come short. Our righteousness always falls short of the glory of God. Jesus' strongest rebuke in the New Testament was not for the prostitutes, the drunks, 
and the crooks. But his strongest rebuke came to the religious Pharisees. Good people, sacrificial people, people who sacrificed every day, morning, noon, or night, but they had no love relationship with Jesus Christ. They had no relationship. The only thing that will save you and cover your sins is a right relationship with God. Saul shifts the blame to his soldiers. Now, how often has we found this to be true? It's always easier to blame somebody else than accept personal accountability. We blame our husband for our failures and our wife for our failures. We blame our parents because this is the way I am and this is the way I grew up and this is the way they brought me up. We blame our friends for all of our sins. True repentance only occurs when we confess our sins and accept personal responsibility. True repentance only occurs when I accept my personal responsibility. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you. It's been less than 10 years has passed since Saul was at the height of his popularity. He is picked up. He is coronated as king. He wins a great, mighty battle, saves a whole nation from extinction. Uh, He is seen among the prophets. He is seen to be a very spiritual man, prophesying with everybody else. But in less than 10 years, now he's gone all the way down to where the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. In fact, verse number 12 kind of shows you how far down Saul descended. It says in verse 12, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. No no one else will honor him. God will not honor him. So what's he do? He builds a monument to himself. Very, very proud, impetuous, disobedient king. He has a few victories, a little bit of power, a little bit of recognition, and it's gone to his head, and he's in charge now of making his, all of his own decisions. Listen, here's the bottom line. If we are going to be a part of God's kingdom, we've got to let him rule and reign in our life. It's not about us. It's all about him. He's chosen us. He's called us. He speaks to us. He guides us. He leads us. But who is going to rule your life? When we say, I'm in charge and I'm calling the shots and I can do my own thing, then we forfeit our right to rule and reign with Christ. Saul never learned the lesson. He never fully repented. He never fully submits to God's will. And he ends up in losing the kingdom. Let's pick up the story in chapter 15, verse 24, as I wrap it up. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people. There's that word fear. And so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sins and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Now listen to me. There he says, forgive me. I beg you, forgive me so I can once again worship. Now it sounds like he's repenting, but let's keep reading. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught a hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who, is, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should not change his mind. And look at what Saul says. Saul replied, I have sinned. Please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. 
Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. In other words, forgive me. I've lost favor. Honor me before everybody else. For Saul, it was always about the people. Always about pleasing the crowd, uh, uh, pleasing them, keeping the armies from scattering, allowing them to take the sheep and the cattle, doing whatever it was to maintain his popularity. It was never true, genuine repentance. There's a difference, it says in Corinthians, between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is because I got caught. Worldly sorrow is so I can look good in the eyes of others. Godly sorrow is God against you and you only have I sinned. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Please help me. Goes on to say, then Samuel said, bring, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him confidently thinking, surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel said, as the sword has made your woman, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went on to his home at Gebeah of Saul. Until that day Samuel died, he did not go see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, as the Lord was grieved over that he made Saul king of Israel. Can you imagine the word of God saying he's grieving because Saul was the king? And he was such a colossal, colossal failure. Saul would later be killed in battle. It's interesting. I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Just an interesting footnote. Saul is going to be killed in battle. He's going to be on Mount Gilboa. He's going to see the enemy coming. And one account says he falls upon his sword, which is the way he died. He killed himself. He commits suicide lest lest he fall into enemy hands. But an Amalekite runs upon him when he's falling on his sword. He brings back a fallacious report to David. And look at what he says uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 4. What happened, David asked, tell me. The man from, fled from battle, many of them fell and died, and Saul, the son of Jonathan, are dead. Then David said to the young man, who brought him this report, how do you know that Saul, the son of Jonathan, is dead? I happened to be on Mount Geboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, what can I do? And he asked me, who are you? And look what it says, an Amalekite. An Amalekite, I answered. Then, then, I said, then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him, killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, I could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I brought them here to you. Now I want you to leave you with one quick thought. Because of Saul's colossal failure to exterminate the Amalekites, one of them would later come and be the one to claim to kill King Saul and bring the final blow that brought him down. Here's the lesson. What you refuse to crucify, what you allow to remain in your life, will ultimately come back to destroy you. What you refuse to crucify, what you allow to remain in your flesh, what you hang on to as your own self-will, will ultimately come back to bring about your own destruction. Wow. It was an Amalekite. How ironic. Let me read you a verse. Paul says, I have 
I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. He is my Lord. He is my King. I live my life in this body. I live it out of faith to Almighty God. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. I want to ask you a question. How about you? Have you been crucified with Christ Jesus? Have you identified with his death, burial, and resurrection? Is he in control of your life? Are you a part of his great kingdom? Are you living by faith in him? Or are you still in charge? Are you still calling the shots? Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org.